opened for our reading to the book of the Revelation and the chapter 2, commencing our reading at the verse 12. The book of the Revelation, chapter 2, and we commence the reading of God's holy word in the verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Come, let us hear together God's holy word. The Lord, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive his word for his name's sake. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord be pleased to bless that public reading of his holy and fallible word. Let us come before the Lord together in prayer. Well, dear congregation, I invite you now to please turn your prayerful attention to those words that I read to you in your hearing there in the book of the Revelation in the chapter 2. And uh, we consider this evening, with the Lord's help, the verse 12 through to the verse 17 of this chapter. And we consider the church at Pergamos. This is now the fifth sermon in our series of studies through this book. We are well now into our studies of the book of the Revelation. And we remind ourselves that of just a few things by way of introduction as we come to our regular systematic verse-by-verse exposition of God's holy word here in the book of the Revelation. As we notice that this book, right from the beginning, is given to the seven churches but not only to them, but to all the churches. We have read so far, haven't we, concerning the letters to the seven churches. Hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And we have noticed already in chapter 1 that these things concern that which is and that which is to come, not just concerning these churches, but all churches throughout all ages. Seven, as we have thought about, is a special number. It's a peculiar number. It signifies whole. It signifies complete. And we could say that these churches are representative, although these were real churches, they are representative of churches down through the gospel age. 
through the millennia. I'm not speaking about the millennium, but the millennia, right through the gospel age until the final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one last climactic event that we are to see, and that is the end of this world. And the book of the Revelation indeed speaks of these things. And by the way, let me first say, it's the book of the Revelation. There's no S in the word Revelation. You've heard sometimes people say, are we going to study the book of the the Revelations? I've had emails saying that, are we looking at Revelations? Well, there's only one Revelation. It's the book of the Revelation. It's not Revelations. There's one Revelation, and the Lord here is revealing these things to us. It's not a book that is meant to conceal, but to reveal. And having said that, we must avoid the tendency to sensationalize this book. What do I mean? Sometimes when there's a major event, you know how the prophecy mongers go straight to the book of the Revelation. Something's either happening in Russia or in the Far East or the Middle East, and they come straight to the book and they say, well, here it is. We are not to do that. The whole purpose of the book is to encourage the churches. There are great events. The main themes of the book are the revealing of the the evil one, Satan himself, the revealing of the false church, and also the revealing of the true church. What does the true church look like? Let us be very careful not to sensationalize the book. And remember, it's largely symbolic. As I said already, that the number seven is significant. We think there in verse eight, where the Lord says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And then he he speaks about all the things that are to come, not just concerning these churches, but as I said, these churches are representative of all churches. And what we have been noticing is that they are unique. And it's true about every church, just as it's true about every Christian. But what we could say, as we look at these churches, and as we'll see tonight, a lot of it has to do upon their location, because they are suffering different things. They're under different trials. And so often... These things will be typical of the true church, wherever she may be. If we're facing such and such a situation, such and such a tendency will be true of us. And therefore we must take heed. Now, something else. As I said, seven is a special number. We see this already. The Lamb has seven eyes. There are seven cycles in the book. There are seven trumpets, seven bowls that are poured out. But I remind you once again, these cycles, as we have just said, there are seven cycles in this book, and we're seeing the first cycle. And the first cycle really has to do with the church. The seven cycles are what we call synchronous. They're all happening at the same time. They are things seen from different vantage points, things from different views, from different angles. We see... Seven times that we are brought before a judgment throne, we, we're coming to the end, and they're all showing us the end of all things, but from seven different perspectives. And this first cycle, as we've said, has to do with the church. 
And this affords us great comfort, doesn't us? Doesn't it? As we consider here the church, the Lord has his eye upon the church. And the Lord is, where is he? Chapter 1. He's walking amidst the lampstands. The lampstands are the church. And then you come to the end of the first cycle. But where is the Lord? We are given a glimpse of him upon his throne in heaven. That's where Christ is. While he is in the midst, he is on his throne. He has accomplished all that he has to in terms of salvation for his people. The Lamb has overcome and only he is worthy to unloose the seals of this book. And he rules and he reigns. And all things are coming to a great and glorious end. God will be exalted. His people finally will be with him in heaven. Not because of a righteousness of our own. We read at the end how the saints are clothed in his righteousness. It's not as the New King James puts it, the righteous acts of the saints, but it's the righteousness of the saints which is given to them by Jesus Christ. It's a very bad translation in the New King James. Now I just say that by way of passing. Now we are seeing that there are seven churches, and as as I said, they really existed but they represent wonderfully, and sometimes not so wonderfully, the state of the church throughout the gospel age. But one thing is true, and the promise is that to those in those churches, and we must remind ourselves just because we're in the church, we might be a church member, doesn't mean that we're a member of the kingdom of heaven. We'd like to think that everybody in the church is saved. But of course, there's no guarantee in that. Your church membership doesn't guarantee you heaven, does it? That's ludicrous. And it would be uh, rather audacious of us to conclude that. But it is whether we overcome. It's said to each and every one of those in those churches, he that overcometh. And again, emphasizing what we've seen in chapter 2, and we see it again here in chapter 7, Chapter 2, verse 17, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Not church. Every time, the churches. So this evening, as we come now to this church here in Pergamos, I remind you, again, seven is a special number. And not only is the book of the Revelation made up of seven parts, but as we have noticed already, that each letter to the church is made up of seven parts. Let me just give them to you again, and you'll be able to follow once again the structure of this letter with me to the church at Pergamos. Firstly, as we'll see, there's the address to the church, and then there's the one of Christ's designations, his distinct titles that he, he gives himself. He addresses, and and again, as we'll see, it's tailored to each church. And then there is the Lord's commendation to that church. This is generally speaking, apart from the church at Laodicea, as we said, that's the only uh, one church there where there's no commendation. And then there's the Lord's condemnation of something. 
And then, fifthly, there is a solemn warning to that church. And then, sixthly, there is Christ's exhortation to that church. And then, seventhly, there's his promise to those who overcome that uh, exhortation and, and who obey that exhortation and who overcome that particular sin or that vice within the church. So, again, as we're seeing, no church is alike. There are peculiar difficulties and problems. It depends on the circumstance, on the geographical location, where they're living, the sinners that they're amongst. But one thing is true of all of them is they must overcome. And we are told, and we're not, by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us and we will overcome our sin. Now, first of all, remember we saw the church at Ephesus, and the, the, it was a good church, as we said, but it had a major flaw. That church had lost its first love. And uh, really, what was that? They had lost sight of why they are to be doing things, because they love God, and all for the glory of God. They need to remember that whilst they're a doctrinal Doctrinally sound church, it's the Lord that holds the ministers of that church in his hand. And they are what they are by the grace of God. Any knowledge of God and any salvation that we have is not of ourselves. It's all of grace. That's what the church of of Ephesus had to remember. It's the same for us. We must never forget that if we're saved, it's entirely of God's grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. The reformers had it right, sola gratia, that's always first. And then sola fide, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Man has to be quickened, by the grace of God he is quickened, and then he is given the gift of faith, that is after he is born again. And then he knows and grows more in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now last week we considered the church at Smyrna. It was a church that suffered great poverty, wasn't it? Great poverty. But remember the Lord said, but you're rich. It was a a well-to-do port city. But the Lord said, but you're rich. Remember that. There's a wonderful commendation. There was no condemnation to that church. That church, and I said the church at Philadelphia, no uh, condemnation. But the pattern now, as we come to this church in Pergamos, is the same. Same structure, the seven things that we see. Now, firstly, notice the address to the church and to the angel of the church in Pergamos. Right, and we must remind ourselves here that the Lord Jesus, by the angel and Remember, it it is the word that is given to John. If you notice in the beginning of this um, book of the Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of John, but it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and so on. And... uh, John has given these things, but John is not writing to a literal angel. It would be preposterous, it would be ludicrous to conceive that John is actually writing to a heavenly being. We've said that before, but it needs to be said. 
John is writing to the messenger. That's what the word means. The Greek word means messenger. The one who addresses the church. There are no, never were any reports of angels coming into a church and delivering a message. Not at all. Well, here the messenger of the church or the angel of the church. Well, why to them? Well, because they are responsible for the flock over the which the Lord has put them. Remember the words there in Hebrews 13 verse 17, how the Apostle Paul speaks to the Hebrews that have been scattered, the, the Jewish believers. He says, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls. So here, the angel or the messenger of the church really has ultimate responsibility. It's a solemn thing, isn't it? And he has to deliver this message to the people. He has to deliver it faithfully. It's not going to be easy, as we'll think. There's some difficult things going on here at the church at Pergamos. Do you remember what it was Paul when he was bidding the elders farewell at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, in the verse 28, he said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. This is God's heritage. This is God's people. And it's a solemn responsibility. The messenger must, what the Greek says, Herald, kerugma, the word. He must herald the message of the king, the Bastilio. He must herald the message. It is a message from Christ. And I want you to notice here, secondly, on that note, Christ's, one of Christ's di distinct titles, which, by the way, are found in chapter 1. As I said, every one of the seven titles or designations Christ gives to himself, that which is designated to him, he announces to each church, but it's tailored to that specific church. And he says, notice verse 12b, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. We've read that, haven't we, already in uh, chapter 1. That verse 16 chapter 1, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. So we saw that in chapter 1. Now here's where the rubber hits the road, as it were. This is where we find the connection. There is bad doctrine. There is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and also the doctrine of those who teach the things of Balaam to cause others to stumble. And these people are being tolerated. And the minister, the angel of the church, needs to understand, look, these things, he's speaking to the angel of the church, saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And I want to think about that here this evening. And this has been a great help and encouragement to me when at times we've had to face very difficult situations here in this church with people who hold to false doctrine. If we have the word of Christ, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. 
and we have nothing to fear. And the angel of that church had nothing to fear. The minister of that church had nothing to fear because it is Christ that wields, as it were, that sword. He has it. And a faithful minister who is true to the word of God and who correctly divides the word of God has nothing to fear but can take all courage and encouragement. But here's another thing. Here's the other side of the two-edged sword. If you're on the receiving end of that, beware. If you're in the way of error, truth will always expose error. We have the word, don't we? And it's those who hold to error who must fear. Truth will always prevail. Sometimes we fear men, and that's very wrong. If we have God's word, and we know we are right in God's word, and if we're correctly dividing the word of God, we have nothing to fear. But we must stand firm in the truth. That's so important, isn't it? But ultimately, it's Christ, isn't it? That gives us that truth, and therefore we must be humble as we hold to the truth. There are those already, as we've seen, as we've read in verse 14, that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. And there are those that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So Christ here is aptly applying this title to this situation. I hope you see that. It's vital that we see that. What a comfort it is to ministers when they're in difficulty. Hold to the truth, because the Lord will hold you. And one day we'll stand before him. People may wrong us, may even wrong the church, but we'll all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And when the minister speaks, he must herald the message of God's word. So this is Christ's self-designation to the angel of the church and to the church which is immensely helpful, no doubt, at this particular situation. And this gives great boldness and comfort, doesn't it, today? You know, when these people in their high churches, in their high pulpits, want to say things that are contrary to the word. Well, if we have the word, we have the sword, we have everything, don't we? And what have we to fear? It gives great boldness and comfort. Now, thirdly, we come to the Lord's commendation. Well, what does he commend? Notice, he says, I know thy works. Again, it's, it's the Greek word there, edo, which is not the word gnosis, or just simply knowledge, but it's an intimate knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge and appreciation of the whole church, every member in the church, an intimate knowledge. Now, this is very solemn, but it's very searching as well, isn't it? It's, it's a comforting thing, but it's, it's very solemn. I know thy works. The Lord knows faithfulness. He doesn't forget it. Even our acts, things that we do, the glass of cold water given in his name, acts of kindness to each other, and even to those who are outside. Now you notice, I know thy works and where thou dwellest even where Satan's seat is. Now, why does the Lord say this? 
There's something very striking here when he says, where Satan's seat is, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, that's their geographical location, even where Satan's seat is. Well, we know from history that Pergamos was not only steeped in great idolatry, it was, there was, it was as bad as Athens. Idols everywhere. Different gods were celebrated. And as far as those idolatrous religions were concerned, men saw them all equally. And Christianity was seen on the same footing as equal to other religions. And I suppose that's the world today, isn't it? You've got your religion, I've got mine. Christianity is no different to Buddhism and Sikhism and Hinduism and Islam. Well, that's how Christianity is even perceived today, isn't it? Everything's on the same level. Well, this is one of the reasons why we could say Satan was there. Because Satan likes to confuse. He's the author of confusion. And that's what he wants men's souls to think. There are many gods, or polytheism even. And that's, I suppose, part of Satan's strategy, uh, to create as many religions as is possible. There are many ways to God. Christianity is just another way. After all, I suppose the world would want you to think, and Satan, of course, we're reminded in Ephesians, worketh in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the end. They all walk after his course. Their minds are deceived, says Paul. Satan has blinded their minds. Christianity can just be discarded just like another religion. The choice is really down to you. You pick and choose which one. We'll all respect them. Give them a choice. That's the world today, isn't it? Let them think that there are many ways to God. But having said that, In Pergamos, it was particularly renowned as a city in the field of medicine and sciences. It had a huge library there, perhaps one of the world's largest libraries. And it was particularly renowned for its sciences and particularly for medicine, well known for medicine, which itself was prided on. Pergamos prided itself on its Advances in medicine, or so-called. And there was the worship of Asclepius, who was called the god of medicine, the son of Apollo. It was actually, and you know, you can even, if you use Wikipedia, if you've got a good encyclopedia, you can look it up yourself, and you can see a statue of him. And there's still a statue today. And... uh, I'm sure you've heard of the symbol of Caduceus, which is what the medical staff use. And alongside the statue of Asclepius is this sword, and there's a serpent on it. And the medical field use that today. It's still being used today. People often wonder, where did it come from? Well, you can do your own research on this and... People still use this today. I'm, in fact, looking here just at a very uh, 
small sketch of him here. It's a worldwide symbol even today. And uh, who was it that took to himself, first of all, the form of a serpent? But Satan, another reason, you see. And uh, the serpent serpent here, alongside this so-called god of medicine, Apollo, who they worshipped. Well, basically, when you think about medicine, man prides himself even on that today, doesn't he? Sadly, the science is always changing, they say. Things like that. You've heard things like that, particularly with the, the virus. Satan himself manifested himself to our first parents, Adam and Eve, as a serpent. Well, this false god was seen as a great healer. He was even given the title of a soter or savior. Uh, one of the scholars, a very faithful Dutch commentator, Herman Huxma, says, the symbol of Satan was hailed as the savior of men and was worshipped there in Pergamos. So we have perhaps an understanding there why it is called Satan's seat. But another reason is it was also known for its emperor worship. So as I said, they worshipped all kinds of gods and they, they admired the sciences. And it, Well, Caesar was worshipped. In fact, there was a, a place, even a temple that was built and given over to Caesar's worship to worship him. Whether it was Caesar... Nero or Domitian, these men were seen by and large by the people as more than men, sort of demigods. And we read even of here of a man, Antipas, and some suggest, we don't know for sure, that maybe Antipas refused to bow to Nero. Well, that's really putting us all together. That's what Satan wants, doesn't he? Satan, and you even speak to Satanists, they say something to you like this, well, Satan doesn't really want you to even worship him. He wants you just to enjoy yourself, and uh, you be your own God, and, and you go back to the Garden of Eden. What did Satan say to our first parents? You don't believe God because God knows that ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. What did he say? For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You see, that was at the heart of Satan's tempting our first parents. Will you be God? God's just withholding things from you. And that's how Satan works in this world. So you had the serpent Satan set up as a savior. And this man who was, his symbol was that. And it's there, I say, you can look it up and do your own research on this. In the medical field, still use that today. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with medication and things like that. But you see, even in that, man takes pride, doesn't he? Man prides himself. Just as Pergamos prided itself on scientific advancements, 
It was worship of man, ultimately. And that's what Satan wants. You separate yourself from... You don't need God. And that's the world today, isn't it? You don't need God. That's what Satan was saying to our first parents. And that was the first sin, pride. They were told not to eat the forbidden fruit. But that's Satan's tactic. He hasn't changed. One bit. And it's true, wherever Satan holds the most sway, it's worship of man, isn't it? Ultimately, what you had here with the people in Pergamos was man worship, whether it was medicine, whether it was advancement. But who was behind it? Satan. And that, that was Satan. Remember, we read in Isaiah 11, he said, and the Lord cast him out, Lucifer. But he said, I shall be as the most high. I will be great. And, and that's man, isn't it? That's at the heart of man, pride. Satan wants you to make yourself feel great. And, and people are like this today. Man takes great pride in many things. You think even of this sort of global warming. We'll beat this thing. The science will beat it. We'll beat the virus. We'll defeat it. We are gods. With God, as you will see through the book of the Revelation, he sends plagues. There's nothing man can do. He's showing man his weakness. You think when man sinned, way back in the Garden of Eden, it was the greatest anticlimax, wasn't it? Far from being a god, he was ashamed of himself. And men, in their own pride and ignorance, reduced themselves, my friends, to beasts. We say abortion, look at it. What, what, what has it done to advance society? It's degraded us, my friends. It's made us murderous. All these things. You want to be gods? Wherever Satan is strongest, let me say, man is worshipped. Achievements today are worshipped, aren't they? Or we worship going to the moon. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with science. Man is an intelligent being. But friends, we can't improve upon ourselves, can we? You listen to the scientists, they say all kinds of things, don't they? Man does not need God. That's really what he's saying. Man can save himself. It's much like London today, much like England, isn't it? So that was rightly described as the seat of Satan, medical advances. And I think it's quite striking, isn't it, that that figure... I never liked snakes anyway. I, I don't know why. I've always never liked... I'm sure most of you never liked snakes, but why would you use such a symbol for something that is supposed to be good? And of course, medicine can be good and treatment can be good. But it's evil. It, behind it's pride. You don't need God. That's what man is saying. 
Friends, whatever intellect or whatever we have is from God, isn't it? And science doesn't work against God. Now, something else. And thou holdest fast my name. So it was commended because these people were faithful in this place. Despite people worshipping man and advancing, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. See, it's the faith that God gives, isn't it? Now the Lord tells us there was a man there, notice, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. This man, it seems, suffered for something. Maybe he didn't bow to, to Caesar or something like that. Maybe he didn't bow to Rome, and worship the things. He was hated, no doubt. Now, some say that Antipas was thrown into a boiling cauldron of oil. Some say he was roasted alive in a copper steer. We don't know. But the thing is, he suffered for his faithfulness and being faithful. And, well, he represented the faithfulness, we could say, of the church in many ways. But notice, there is a condemnation. Fourthly, the Lord's condemnation. But I have a few things against thee. And now it seems now that Antipas, it's in the past, it was maybe a little while ago. But now the Lord brings a word of condemnation. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now we remember Balaam at the close of the book of Numbers, Numbers 25 and following. And remember Balaam, he tried to curse, he was hired by Balak to curse the children of God. Remember as they were coming out of Egypt and uh, now in the promised land and making their way through to the promised land, not quite yet in the promised land, but on their way through. And he couldn't curse the people of God because they were blessed. But what did he do? Remember how he showed Balak how to deceive the men of Israel. How? Well, remember he brought in these Moabite women and they committed terrible things with these women and then they followed after false gods. And that's what is being spoken of here. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. And we're told what it is here. This doctrine of Balaam who indeed taught um, the to Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel because he couldn't curse them. The stumbling block was lust. And uh, if you just turn there briefly to Numbers 25, you notice every time when Balaam went to curse, God only put words of blessing in Balaam's mouth. But then Balaam showed Balak how it could be done. 
And so these Moabites women are brought in the camp. We read in verse, 20, uh, verse 3 of Numbers 25, And Israel joined himself to Baal-peel, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal-peer, that is, that committed fornication with these women. And it was a, if you look at verse 8b there, there was not only the slaying of the men, but there was a plague upon the people because of this. Verse 8b, so the plague was stayed from the children of Israel, and those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. Now we have several mentions of this in the New Testament, in the book of Jude, and also in the book of Second Peter 2, verse 14, we have another mention of it there, where Peter says, and he's writing here concerning those who were just like those who, like Balaam, who, who, who enticed the people. And he speaks about false teachers, and he says, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and hearts they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Boso, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Remember, he was being paid by Balak, and so on. So several times it is mentioned. So coming back here to Revelation 2, verse 14, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. It seems that there were those there at the church of Pergamos who were either directly engaged in some way of enticing people or just by their own lives, putting things in front of other people, not thinking about it, or perhaps deliberately. We don't know. Maybe these people are just outrightly evil. The doctrine is they were enticing other people. Maybe so that they could excuse their own sinful lifestyle. You do what I do, so we're all in the same boat. And maybe the minister of the church won't say anything. But sin has to be dealt with. Usually, it's like this, isn't it? I suppose we are our brother's keeper. In 1 Corinthians 8, we're told by the Apostle Paul, how we can cause another man to stumble, to fall. If we do things without thinking, he says, we know we all have knowledge, he says. But if you offer, if you eat deliberately food offered to idols, and this brother doesn't understand that there are no other gods, and yet you offend his conscience, you cause him to stumble. You don't care about your brother. Here is either deliberate lawlessness or those who didn't care. We could apply this to our situation even today. The pub is no place for a Christian. Is it? Not at all. When you sit down and have a drink or something in a pub, it's just not the drinking. There's always something else. There's ungodly conversation. There are rude jokes. But the pub goes a lifestyle. 
those sort of things. It's wrong. Christian doesn't engage in this. Lawlessness. Causing other people to stumble. We ought to be being conformed to the image of Christ as Christians. We have no business to be in those places. You've heard people say, oh, well, the Lord Jesus, he hung about with all the... My friends, he didn't hang about places to get drunk. He may have talked to prostitutes and harlots and drunkards and down and outs, but he never frequented those places. Something else, verse 15. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. We've already seen, notice in chapter 2, verse 6 there, concerning the church at Ephesus. They've already been mentioned in, in this cycle. Verse 6, where the Lord commends the church at Ephesus and says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now it's believed that the deeds of the Nicolaitans, as I said, this has to do with the practice. They, they were libertines, it's believed. They, they would just live this life of liberty. And we do what we want doesn't matter. The deeds, notice the deeds. And there are the people going along to the church here that go in the way of the Nicolaitans. They practice these things. As I said before, that word Nicolaitan, it's believed, has to do with just eating, living it up. Paul had to write to the Galatians. And reminds us of our liberty in Christ. Galatians 5.13 Brethren, ye have not been called unto liberty. Ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. You don't use your Christian liberty to sin. That's what he's saying. It's the same in the Christian life. There's all kinds of ways we can... Dishonor God. Gluttony is a sin. You eat too much. That's a sin. Your body is the temple of God. And we must glorify God in our bodies. Smoking. Abuse of alcohol. Abusing our bodies. All of that is a sin. Paul says to the Romans in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? that grace may abound. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many as you were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You're a new creature. Remember what Paul had to write to the Corinthians. He said, know ye not that your body is the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6.13 He says, meats for the belly and belly for the meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. 
Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So there were those that were living lives of libertinism, just do as you want. No rules. But we are Christ's, aren't we? We're joined to him. Our bodies, our souls, our life is hidden in Christ. And so thou hast also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And that's a warning in and itself, isn't it? The Lord, if the Lord hates something, we better beware of it. What did Paul say to the Corinthians later in 2 Corinthians? He said, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That's your body, your soul, your whole person. The whole purpose of being a Christian is to be holy and for the glory of God. Do we realize that? We're not here even for our own pleasure. We're joined together in this body. We are joined to a local church to be a holy people and to be separate for Jesus Christ. Now, fifthly, a solemn warning. Verse 16, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly. This is going to be a sudden appearance of the Lord, just like there when the Lord had to judge many times in the Old Testament. We've already read there from Numbers how there was a great devastation, how there was a plague, how men were slain, how heads were hanging up to dry in the sun, and the flies eating the flesh and the blood. The Lord says, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly. It's a lesson. God does not tolerate sin in his church, licentiousness, anything like that. The Lord will come and pay an unexpected visit, just like Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. The Lord came in a powerful way, and the Lord judged, didn't he? There are many examples in the Old and New Testament. Now, sixthly, Christ's exhortation to that church. 17, verse 17, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Christ is Spirit as well, isn't he? It's not only Christ speaking, but his Spirit and preached by his word, preached by his minister, who is wielding he, the word of Christ, the double-edged sword. And it is a 
two-edged sword. The one that overcomes would be blessed, even though maybe he has been sinning these sins. If he overcomes, there are certain blessings. But notice the warning. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. In other words, take heed to how you hear. You can hear. It's not just hearing, is it? But this hearing implies reception and right response. Repent and overcome. They're to overcome the godlessness around them and the godlessness in the church. They are to continue on. Look at Antipas, who didn't bow to Caesar. The world is all around them. And friends, the world is all around us and the influences. And the world is saying, worship the world. Worship science. We're not against science. But we don't worship man. God has given man intelligence. But we commit ourselves to God, don't we? We don't cut corners. If God says something is wrong, it's wrong. You know, if Caesar asks you, or the king, or queen, or prime minister asks you to disobey God, what do you do? We obey God, as Peter said, rather than man. But I'm afraid a lot of churches have caved in to this over the last few years. And few that have been faithful. Seventhly, and lastly, his promise of everlasting blessing if the exhortation, notice, is obeyed. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. Now you notice there's the manna, there's the white stone, and there's a new name. These things are glorious. What is this hidden manna? Well, think of it. The world has been feeding all this information that man is great, science is great, advancement is great. We don't deny that there are good advancements. But man is not God, my friends. You see, Man is not God. What is that hidden manner? Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Who is the manner? The manner is Christ. What did he say in John 6, 49? Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. Antipas is living forever. Antipas has gone to heaven. Antipas, the Lord Jesus says, is faithful he ate my bread. He obeyed. He overcame. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life 
of the world, that is all his people in the world. Now you know, just as the manna fall fell for how long? Forty years. How many people did it feed? It fed over two million people for 40 years. And I, I worked it out that one time it was almost 5,000 ton a day. Because you work out the omers, the weight and everything. That's a tremendous amount of food every day falling down, God providing. But you know what? It was hidden. That manna was hidden from the rest of the world. The people in Egypt didn't see that. The people in Canaan didn't see it. They were in the wilderness. And God's people, as it were, are in the wilderness of this world. And we feed from Christ, don't we? Just as you know, when God sent the one plague of darkness amongst the Egyptians, there was light in the Israelites' homes. It's amazing. In every home, in every tent of the Israelites, there was light. God's people have Christ as their food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word. Christ is the word, and the word was made flesh. That manna fell for 40 years and sustained the people. And we're told that their clothes didn't wear out, and their their shoes didn't wear out, and God blessed them. And they went through trial after trial after trial after trial. And those that were faithful like Joshua and Caleb, saw the promised land. It was hidden from the world, that manner. No other nation saw it. And it's true for God's people. It says there in Psalm 78, verse 25, man did eat angels' food. In the wilderness, man did eat angels' food. We read there in verse 23, though he had commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven, and had rained down manna upon them to eat, and had given them of the corn of heaven. And it says there, man did eat angels' food. That wonderful. But friends, do we not even eat better than they ate? In the, do we not have Christ? Do we not have the full revelation? Do we not have Jesus Christ? And the Lord speaks to us by his Spirit. Let us hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. And the lesson is, you see, there are those that maybe were guilty of sin, but the Lord says, He that overcomes, I will give to eat the hidden manna. You overcome your sin, God will reveal to you His truth. He will reveal, He will provide. You and I are called to be faithful witnesses. The minister here was told to stand up and read this to the church, to wield the sword, he that has that two-edged sword, to give his message. And if he did so, the people obeyed, they would be blessed. Here's the thing. We too as Christians are called to be faithful witnesses. Just as Antipas was. Antipas, he stood against the tide of wickedness in his day, didn't he? Antipas was faithful. He wasn't a silent lamb. When he needed to say something, he said it. Of course, he wasn't gung-ho. He would have been faithful. 
But when he needed to say something, he said it. And notice something else. Not only will he give their hidden manna, but I will give him a white stone. And in that stone, a new name written. Now, what is meant here? Well, one explanation, and I think it's probably the most accurate I've, or the most believable, I would say. A white stone, the explanation of this. An ancient custom in the courts of law in Rome was, if somebody was not found guilty, they were given a white stone and their name was written on that stone to show that they were innocent. White, prevent, uh, showing that purity. So that was the reward of somebody that was faithful. But here... Notice, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written. Think of it. If you have overcome your sin, God gives you a new name, a new record. You and I, our sins are blotted out in Jesus Christ. And as God looks at us, if we truly are the Lord's, we'll be faithful to him. And he will never remember our sins. But our record, we know if we're in Christ, is perfect. Because God has written, we told in Colossians, the handwriting that was against us has been blotted out. And the record is clean. And you see here, which no man knoweth, saying, saving he that received you that nobody else knows. You have this name. You have been true. You have been faithful. And only you are able to tell what God has truly done in your life, in your heart. Saving he that receiveth. You alone. And one day, I don't know. Some of the commentators go a little bit wild here, but some of them suggest this, that when we reach glory, it is those times then that we'll be able to share our experiences of how faithful the Lord has been to us, that we were able to be faithful. We can only be faithful because he is faithful. Ultimately, is he not the faithful witness? He will never deny his name. He will never deny his people. His people that align themselves with him, he not only blots out their record, but he gives them all grace. And he gives them the manna, the hidden manna. He gives them food every day. He sustains them. And he gives them grace. And maybe one day, We'll, as we sat round at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we'll be able to share how faithful he was to us. We'll say, well, I wasn't faithful, but I repented and I overcame by Jesus Christ. And I found him to be my manner in the wilderness of this world. Amen.